Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today at Oxenfell High Cross, the high-level crossing point between Skelleth Bridge and Coniston. And I'm here in the company, as always, with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. This is a, a lovely day after last night anyway. It's fingers crossed that we'll beat the thunderstorms. They're meant to be coming in little bubbles. Last night, Cumbria attacked by thunder and lightning. The weather forecaster was just come on shift. He was on Radio Cumbria and they asked him, how many lightning strikes have there been? And he said, I, I don't know, but we will have a record. It will be in many thousands. Is that right? Tens of thousands. Right, OK. It was all the way from southern Scotland all the way down to North Wales. Colossal. It's a once-in-ten-years event. No, like no, the no. annual flood we get in Cumbria, you know. <laughs> it's a once-in-ten-year event. That's the one. Right, now we're here today at this very central point in the Lake District and a very popular area as well. We're just north of Beatrix Potter country and we're here for a podcast I'm looking forward to hugely about one of my great passions, which is English literature and specifically children's literature. Fascinating topic. It's one that sort of skirted me. I, there's only one that I was tuned into apart from Beatrix Potter was Fell Farm Holiday. Got a little quiz for you, Mark. Mm -hmm. This is first lines, or just defining lines from books. So just name the book. Once upon a time there were four little rabbits. Peter Rabbit or something. Okay. The Greendale roads seemed more twisty and twiny than ever. Sometimes Pat wished he could fly like a bird. Well, that must be Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) (laughs) Postman Pat. Okay. Better drown than duffers, if not duffers won't drown. Well, Wainwright called me a duff. He said, a duffer can make good if he tries hard enough. But in that case, swallows and Amazons? Very good. Yeah, OK. We're full marks, Mark. Oh, there we go. But we will be exploring these and many, many more with today's guest. And who is our guest for today? Well, we have Dr Penny Bradshaw, Senior Lecturer in English Literature at uh, University of Cumbria, Lead Researcher in Cultural Landscapes for National Parks and Protected Areas, Somebody who has a tremendous grasp on the heritage of writing. And you've crafted a short circular route for us, going to the top of Black Crag, I think, that takes us to some of the areas that we'll be talking about. So just give us a brief overview of where we're walking. Well, we've branched out on what is the Cumbria Way and head, in effect, south in terms of the Cumbria Way walkers, and maybe we'll meet a few on the way. Uh, there'll be a few. And then we go up onto Black Crag, which is um, a majestic viewpoint. You know, mm. you don't need height in the Lake District to get the views. And, you know, there are some summits that are set apart for a reason, and that's mm. to put it in heaven. It's a wonderful spot. Yeah, it's a great spot. And we come down via High Ironside, Low Ironside, and back to the car. So it's quite a short walk, probably yep. three miles. Yep. It'll take us, ooh, hours. <laughs> On that note, let's uh, make our first strides and go and meet Penny. day it's sunny and bright you can hear the back tinkling at the moment the sun is coming through the birch trees I'm uh, following a wonderful little lane little droveway for cattle and sheep 
And over to my right I can see Holmfell beautifully clothed in birch and heather on the top. And just over the top I can see Coniston Old Man. It's a gorgeous spot. And indeed I have Penny with me. Penny Bradshaw. Delightful to see you Penny. Hello there Mark. Lovely to see you. Now, what is your role at the University? So I am the head of the literature programmes at the university. So that in practice means that I'm programme leader for the undergraduate literature and the MA in literature, romanticism and the lakes. That's quite a mouthful. It is. It's a long title. <laughs> <laughs> it covers a wonderful array of literature of which we will explore today. Yes. Now, what got you into that whole sphere? Really, this kind of goes back to my childhood. And actually, this is, of course, the thread that we're going to be pursuing today. So uh, my own childhood is itself influenced by my father's childhood. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the backstory there, because that leads into sort of why I'm doing what I'm doing today. My dad was born uh, in Manchester, mm -hmm. back streets of Manchester, the sort of terraced slums in the 1930s. Really quite sort of grim, dark urban environment, very smoky, quite polluted. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the war came. And in 1940, the summer of 1940, the Blitz on Manchester began. Extraordinary time. Very, very dangerous time, of course. Um, houses were getting bombed very locally. And my dad's dad, my granddad, drove a lorry for a living. And so he decided to do this kind of DIY evacuation for the family. He borrowed the lorry for the night. <laughs> And he, um, he packed the children, the siblings and the cousins in this lorry, along with one of the aunts and a couple of uncles. And they drove through the night. And my dad remembers them pulling up on a hillside just outside Manchester and looking down. And he said it looked like Manchester was on fire. Ooh. So they essentially escaped from this scene of horror. And they drove into south-east Lancashire. And they found this village called Edenfield. Beautiful village. And they found a farm with a sort of semi-derelict cottage the uncles put windows in, the aunts whitewashed it, and the children stayed there for several months during the splits. What a wonderful discovery. It was extraordinary. And what happened, of course, is that my dad was transplanted from this urban environment into this very, very primitive, very basic rural environment. They had oil lamps well in the garden and so on. But essentially, he was kind of gifted with a Wordsworthian childhood, suddenly. So they had a, a waterfall and a pool, and the children would swim in the pool, much as Wordsworth did in the Derwent, and the children would walk for miles across the fields to school. And this experience was utterly transformational on my dad. Physically, it's transformational. He went from being this very scrawny, very pale, slightly grey child brought up in the slums. He went back home and one of the aunts saw him and said, you look like the hopes of the side, which is this wartime poster of this idyllic child with rosy cheeks, this yes, strapping lad. But it also transformed him psychologically and he never really looked back from this idea that nature, being with nature, playing with nature as a child was really really important. He would then kind of go back camping with his friends and so on as he grew up and then I came along many years later. Eventually when I was born we lived on the Fylde coast at this point but my dad took us every year to Grasmere. That was his favourite spot and so I grew up inspired by his childhood. I grew up being taken up the fells um, every summer. We scrambled up all the fells around Grasmere and we paddled in the tarns and so he kind of gifted me with that, that kind of experience. That zest for that magical landscape, yeah. which is so unique. Well, we're amidst it now, we as are. it is. You still live in Lancashire. I do, yeah. But you, you are 
committed to Cumbria. I am. I've sort of taken it one step further in my own life. We live in a very rural environment, Trophy Bowland, and my children have had this kind of very <laughs> idyllic upbringing with a river at the end of the garden and so on. But in terms of my work, I've never really lost sight of Cumbria, Cumbria literature, Cumbria landscapes. So I work here. I teach literature at Ambleside and I study the literary responses to this landscape. It's that magical concept. Well, we'll get into the flavour of this whole notion of this inspiring landscape during the course of this walk. We'll make our first strides up this track. Well, it's second strides, so we've second already made some. <laughs> Delightful track that, you know, Penny, isn't it? Absolutely gorgeous. Lovely. We're just past a couple of walkers doing the Cumbria Way because we're actually on the Cumbria Way oh, here. Yes. And I can just see over to my right, Witherlam, which I always think is a lovely name for a fell. Now, this is a wonderful landscape full of human connections that uh, we all love today. We think we're being original in our appreciation of this, but actually we're guided by history and people. And one of those iconic figures was William Wordsworth. Absolutely. I mentioned earlier this idea of a Wordsworthian childhood mm -hmm. in relation to my, my father, his experience in Edenfield. And I thought, really, before we get into talking about some of the, the main writers about the lakes, it was worth just pausing over that idea because it's so influential. This thread runs through so many of the texts we're going to look at. So in a sense, what happens is that Wordsworth inherits ideas of the previous generations and the philosophical ideas of the late 18th century. And these ideas are to do with the child and the state of childhood. And what we get is a, a really important shift in how the child is perceived in the late 18th century. And a really important figure here is the French novelist and philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And Rousseau, in his 1762 novel, Emile, puts forward this really important idea that um, the child should experience a kind of natural education. The child should learn from nature. This is very much against the idea of a traditional education, that the child should go to school and learn, you know, through books. In fact, Rousseau doesn't really want the child to read any books at all, except perhaps Robinson Crusoe, because in Robinson Crusoe, of course, we have a character learning from nature. Rousseau's idea is that the child will be kept away from all those trappings of society for as long as possible and will learn by being in and among nature awareness basically absolutely yeah and this became a really really seminal idea which feeds into a number of writers at the end of the 18th century including Wordsworth and what we get from Wordsworth and what Wordsworth really throws into the mix is the Lake District so what he does is he begins to connect these ideas about a natural education to growing up in this particular and very special landscape. What we get in Wordsworth, and in particular in his autobiographical poems, I'm thinking here especially the prelude, is a really detailed, in-action version of the Rousseau model. So in the prelude, he describes a childhood where he is soothed initially by the River Derwent, flowing down the end of the garden at his house at Cockermouth. Then as he's a little bit older, he's splashing and playing in the River Derwent. And then he gets older still and he runs amongst the fields. He scrambles at cliffs. He borrows boats and goes rowing on lakes at night. He goes ice skating on Esthwaite. And he itemises all these kind of key moments, which he calls spots of time. 
which are central to his own sense of, of growth and development. He feels that these moments have really shaped and influenced him in a very profound way and have really helped him become the man and the poet he would become. It's a really powerful piece of writing that shows us Rousseau's ideas in action. This is what happens if you give the child a natural education. This is what you produce. This moral, thoughtful human being is a kind of product of that experience of childhood. So did Wordsworth himself have an idyllic childhood? I mean, the story really is both dark and wonderful at the same time. It's a little bit like my father's experience in that sense. You know, out of something dark grew something beautiful. So the Wordsworth's mother died when they were very young. This obviously was a very traumatic experience in itself, but it also resulted in a further trauma in that Dorothy, the only female sibling, was, was separated from the family and sent to live with female relatives. And Wordsworth had been very close to his sister. So there was a primary trauma that lies at the heart of this and some critics have talked about the idea that actually the landscape the natural world became replacement parents for Wordsworth that he looked to it in that sense to give him moral guidance. So when do we first witness literature that came out of this Wordsworthian train of thinking? One of the earliest examples of uh, children's literature inspired by this model actually has a very direct Wordsworthian connection. This is a book very little known now called Millie and Ollie, which was published in 1881 by Mrs Humphrey Ward. Now, Mrs Humphrey Ward was a writer's married name and her maiden name was Mary Arnold. Uh, And Mary Arnold was the granddaughter of Dr Thomas Arnold, who was the headmaster at rugby school. uh, And she was also the niece of Matthew Arnold, the Victorian poet. And um, Thomas Arnold, in the 1830s, had come to Rydal for a holiday with his family, got talking to Wordsworth, they became quite good friends, and Wordsworth encouraged Thomas Arnold to build a house, which he subsequently did. It's called Foxhow, and it's on the outskirts of Ambleside, heading towards Rydal. And so he then brought his own children to the lakes on family holidays. And then subsequently, Mary Arnold came and played at Fox Howe. And so what happened is that she became a writer in later life and she drew on these childhood experiences of playing in that house, in that garden, in that location. And she very much saw this as a Wordsworthian landscape. You know, Wordsworth was part of the narrative as far as she was concerned. And so in the story, these two children get transplanted from their townhouse to this beautiful location in the lakes, which she renames Raven's Nest. Um, And the children are, again, transformed by this experience. They play in the lakes, they picnic. They have, for the holidays, a Wordsworthian childhood. So she's reproducing that idea and passing it on to the next generation. Because Loughrigg is such a wonderful fellow to wander over. You've got everything at your disposal there. It's beautiful. Little tarns, little rocks and amazing outlooks. So I can understand that setting meaning a lot. I know Fox Howe, it's a marvellous spot. It's lovely. And stepping stones nearby, there's actually an illustration in one of the later editions with the children going over the stepping stones because it's described in the book. It's still there today, Um, yes. So now we've got our first genuine children's book on the lakes. We'll march on a little further and explore where that leads us. just come to a point where we get a glimpse of a considerable stretch of Tarn House, part of the damned created landscape. And there's a boardwalk down below us with families walking around it in a landscape that is part of the Monk Coniston estate that Beatrix Potter gave to the nation. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we are turning now to one of the really big names in terms of Lake District children's literature. Uh, Beatrix Potter's legacy in this landscape is, is all around us. It's there in terms of the bequest she made, as you've just mentioned, but also, of course, in the way she makes us think about and respond to this landscape through her writing. In terms of just picking up the thread from where we'd left off, Millie and Ollie had been published in 1881, and it was actually only a year later that Beatrix Potter first came to the Lake District. Her family rented Rake Hassel which gives you some sense of their <laughs> their status and wealth as a family and they rented Rake Hassel for the summer and uh, Beatrix Potter came here as a teenager with her family and while she's here she meets Hardwick Rawnsley, one of the co-founders of the National Trust and who himself had been instrumental in carrying Wordsworth's ideas on into the next generation so we've got a really direct connection there and he very much influences Beatrix Potter helps to inspire her ideas about uh, nature wildlife and animals which were already really for quite well developed in the teenagers thinking he helps to develop that in terms of ideas around conservation in the lakes just going back a little bit into her childhood prior to coming to the lakes potter and her brother had had a number of, of animals they kept as pets but it was quite an unusual um, sort of relationship she had with these animals because she, she drew them all the time and she drew them in a really beautifully detailed anatomically correct way and that really tells us something about uh, Potter and her thinking and the way she approached the world from a very early stage she really did have quite a strongly scientific approach she wanted to understand the animals she wanted to understand how they were made and then that interest developed also into various kinds of plants so we've got a combination of a couple of things here we've got her experiencing the lake district landscape uh, as as a young woman as a teenager um, they stay at ray castle they go on to have various holidays in the lakes they stay at derwent water at, at troutbeck so she experiences a lot of these landscapes that of course feeds into her imagination she's already got the scientific impulse and the third ingredient really in what makes the sort of Beatrix Potter package is her interest in fantasy and fairy stories. So as a child she grew up on the fairy stories of Hans Christian Andersen, Grimm fairy tales, um, Aesop's fables and she never really lost that interest in the world of fairy and in fact she says at one point that the wonderful thing about growing up is to carry forward the sense of fairy and fantasy that comes from childhood but to overlay it with reason, in other words with a kind of scientific um, understanding of the world and it's those ingredients that go into making these little books that she began to produce. She publishes Peter Rabbit in 1902 and they are a fascinating mix of realism and fantasy. She produces beautifully rendered, very accurate watercolour pictures of recognisable landscapes in the lakes, Newlands Valley in Mrs Tiggywinkle, for example, Esthwaite Water in Mr Jeremy Fisher. But within these landscapes, she presents us with these anthropomorphised animals who are clothed and who have different kinds of language. And it's that wonderful and complex mixing of those two elements, I think, which really helps to account for her success and also her, her legacy. She was away with the fairies in a wonderful way. <laughs> she was, she was. And what is amazing about Beatrix is that her books, they sold in incredible numbers, almost as she wrote them. That enabled her to earn money beyond what she would ever dream of and then implanted in purchasing land in, in the Lake District because of her love of the setting and of the traditional farming patterns 
and the, her desire to sustain things. It's a wonderful rounded story, really, isn't it? It is wonderful, um, yes, that through this gift, through this talent, through channelling that in the books, she was able to sort of come to this place she loved and not only come here, but actually be a real part of the community. So she actually buys Hilltop with the proceeds from Peter Rabbit. That tells us straight away how very successful that initial publication was with the Edwardian reading public. And some of that is to do with the control she took over the production of the book so she insisted on them being very small so that a child's hand could hold them uh, her insistence on the particular kind of illustrations that went in there it was very unusual at the time um, it's quite a unique product but it also goes back to what I was saying earlier that she really seems to understand the importance for a child reader of things being both recognisable and real but also opening up into their imaginative life got this wonderful fluffy concept <laughs> of lovely little rabbits and so but she's always very realistic about things and life on farms in Cumbria has forever been tough and she was very aware of that there is this perception of Beatrix Potter sometimes that she produces these very twee books with these little fluffy creatures but of course that wasn't the case at all this goes back to what I was saying about the idea that she overlays her fantasy fairy tale elements with a really strong dose of realism and she never really lets us lose sight of the realities of country life and the fact that Peter's father gets eaten in a pie by Mr McGregor um, the fact that Jemima Puddleduck is is essentially being targeted by uh, the foxy gentleman because he wants to eat duck. Um, and even when she's rescued by the farm dogs, the farm dogs go and, and eat her eggs that she's been nesting on. You know, Potter never shies away from those realities. And it, it's there, I think, from the very beginning uh, in her outlook on life, the way she draws her pets as a child. She doesn't draw them in a twee way. That is overlaid by her own experiences of living in the lake. She very quickly settles into life as a countrywoman. She buys a further farm estate. Um, with her proceeds and of course as we all know she subsequently goes on to be a very important breeder of Herdwick sheep so she is in a very large part a farmer and she looks at the landscape in that way and I think that's really important because it isn't an idealising of the landscape um, it's actually very far from being that. lovely this moment in here we're coming through a little bit of birch wood it's called iron keld iron is probably the hard rock keld of course means spring and beneath our feet there's a constant flow of water probably as a result of that wonderful thunderstorm last night and there's some bell heather and tormentil and uh, tree stumps because this has been once upon a time it would have been conifers but it's now a coppice of natural regrowth of birch leading up to the fell now, you've led us a little bit yourself. You've gone through the amazing age of Beatrix Potter. What does the next stage take us to? From Beatrix Potter onwards, what we get is a very significant rise um, in texts written for children set in the Lake District. In fact, we get a rise in children's literature generally, uh, not just in this location. And uh, what begins to happen is that we get very clear genres being developed at this point. Mm -hmm. And one of the genres, which really does relate perfectly to this kind of landscape we're in at the moment, this beautiful, um, this beautiful landscape of wildflowers, um, one of the genres is the girls' school story. So 
So we get very distinctive separating out of uh, particular kinds of stories for girls and boys. That's one of the early developments in children's literature. And a number, quite a significant number of the stories which are targeted at girls are set in this particular landscape, which is quite interesting. The first example of this really is uh, a book by one of the most significant girls' school story authors, which is Angela Brazel incredibly well-known, very influential on subsequent writers like Enid Blyton. Uh, and in 1929, Angela Brazil set uh, a story called St Catherine's College um, in the Lake District. And in that story, the children essentially uh, come on holiday to the lakes and they go on a, a drive through Windermere, through Ambleside, through Grasmere. And there's a very clear connecting of the landscape to Wordsworthian values and indeed to Wordsworth himself. There's a scene where they visit Wordsworth's grave, having just been to Dove Cottage. They, they go to the grave in Grasmere. And this is what they say when they stand looking at his grave. As they watch the yellow sunset glow behind the old church and fade away among the eternal hills, they felt there could be no fitter resting place for him who held all sights and sounds of nature so dear. Essentially, Wordsworthian values are absolutely at the core of these stories, which very much emphasise an education for the girls, which involves nature walks, being out in the landscape, picnicking outdoors, reading poetry, painting. So in a sense, the Wordsworthian idea of the Lake District is reproduced and taken into these books as a kind of perfect um, educational space for these young girls at boarding school. And um, from the Angela Brazel text, there are a number of very significant, very well-known authors of children's fiction, girls' school stories, which are set in the lake. So Elsie Oxenham, Patricia Caldwell, Lorna Hill, all of whom write um, series books where you follow a number of characters uh, across several texts. They all set certain books within a series, often a whole series, within the Lake District. Well, it's time we moved on from that genre, as it were, uh, to another genre, and we'll probably experience that by getting out of this forested area uh, up onto the open fell, where you're into a much more adventurous setting. We've come up to a first cairn. It's a modest, tossed-up cairn, uh, from where we get our first majestic view, uh, I'm looking more to the west, to the Langdale Pikes, to Harrison Stickle and Piker Stickle, and the Coniston Fells, and that draws my eyes naturally down through the trees, the conifers, down beyond Tarnhouse, to the long strath of water that Donald Campbell made famous with his bluebird, but more importantly, Arthur Ransom made famous with his stories. Can you tell me a little bit about Arthur Ransom and his majestic adventure stories? Yeah, absolutely. So here we're coming to another one of the really major names um, in children's fiction in the Lake District. Arthur Ransom is absolutely central, just as Beatrix Potter is. And this is a landscape that he really took hold of imaginatively and presented in his fiction in a way that has really passed that legacy on to subsequent generations of child readers. Just a little bit about Ransom. And again, there are quite a few parallels here with Beatrix Potter in the sense that, once again, he is drawing on his own childhood experience experiences. Ransom came to the lakes with his father initially and he learned to fish and row boats um, and Coniston and then a few years later as a young adult he came back and he uh, learned to sail with the children um, 
of Collingwood, Collingwood uh, Ruskin's secretary. He then went away. He had this stretch of time away from England. He, he uh, was a correspondent, a journalist in Russia, lots of very interesting adventures there which we won't go into today but that too was an important part of his story and his experience and then um, he returns to the lakes and this is the really crucial bit Um, he clunks up again with Collingwood and this time one of the Collingwood children Dora Collingwood is married and she has children of her own and he teaches her children to sail so there's a kind of passing on Mm. of experiences um, in the lakes to real children Mm -hmm. and then what happens is Swallows and Amazons his first children's book published in 1930 grows out of that it grows out of that amalgam of his own experiences and then sort of reproducing his own childhood experiences with these children. The other parallel with Potter really is that although Arthur Ransom's novels are much more obviously realist in the sense that the children are doing real things that children can do, they're sailing, they're rowing, they're fishing and so on. But once again there is a complex mixing of realism and fantasy in terms of what he's talking about because um, although we're looking down on Coniston and that certainly is uh, the lake with which Ransom is most um, clearly connected but actually the lake as it's imagined in Swallows and Amazons is a, a kind of an amalgam of Windermere and Coniston and the island is is, is an amalgam of um, Peel Island, the island on Windermere, the main tourist spot they go to to get their provisions is uh, it's called Rio that's really based on Boness. It's a strange hybrid and he produces maps within his books where he adds in the names that the children give to the various locations and so they they rename them, they overlay their own imaginary ideas on the real landscape. So there is a very interesting link there um, with Beatrix Potter and I think that's really crucial to children's literature because it means that they can come to a known geographical space but once they get here it's sort of all to play for because you can take your own imagination to that landscape and think about it in in any way you want. Fabulous. We've talked a little bit about this Wordsworthian idea and this Wordsworthian vision and in some ways we seem to be very far away from that with Arthur Ransom because it is a much more adventurous response to the Lake District. Um, so when we were talking about the girls' school stories we were really talking about them kind of reading words as poetry and thinking about it in that very sort of calming way. Um, this is really quite different and there aren't any any over-references to, to Wordsworth and Wordsworthian ideals in Ransom's writing. But in a sense it is still a getting back to nature. It is still an assertion of the value of being in the natural world and learning through through the natural landscape. And what is really interesting about the Lake District is how it is adaptable. Different contextual factors can make writers respond to it in different ways. And in the case of uh, Ransom, he's, of course, writing in the interwar period. So as Amazons is published in 1930. And within that period, you see a a very significant rise in what we might call outdoor adventure. So you get the Ramblers Association established, you get the Youth Hostel Association, you get a very significant number of um, Himalayan climbs taking place. Norman Nicholson, the Cumbrian poet and author, has written very interestingly about this this particular moment. He says that after the Industrial Revolution, when man has been separated from the natural world, uh, there is this attempt to keep trying to get back to it. And he says that there have been these three cults of nature. Mm-hmm. The first of these, he says, is the picturesque movement. Um, second is the romantic movement. And then he says there's been this third movement, which he calls the cult of the athletic 
this, he says, is a product of the interwar years, but he sees it as another attempt by humanity to try and get back to this world from which it's been separated, but this time in a very physical way, through mm. climbing, rowing, fishing. So we can really see Ransom's novels as very much a, a part of that. Mm. But of course, as with Potter, as with some of the other writers we've talked about, he then passes on his own legacy. That ingredient, that way of thinking about the lakes goes into um, the sort of visitor approach to the lakes. It gets passed on to future generations. It always tickles me, Ransom used his own names for various things, uh, of which... uh, Kangan Chunga was a, a very good one, which is K2, or the second highest mountain in the world in the Karakoram, which actually was Coniston Old Man. <laughs> Anyways, we, we need to get to the top of Black Crag. It's beckoning us, and it's still clear, so that's marvellous. What a magical place, Penny. We've just made it to the very top of Black Crag with the Ordnance Survey column with the National Trust emblem on it just to reinforce that wonderful connection that goes back to Beatrix Potter, Cannon, Hardwick Rawdensley, all sorts of connections. Uh, from here, you've got a view down to the south towards Clare Heights and Windermere, Low Wood, and there's a, a yacht, a wonderful white yacht in the lake itself, and there's a ferry going down the lake from Waterhead. The fells beyond there to the west, Ill Bell and Kentmere Fells, of course, Wonsfell Pike overlooking the town of Ambleside. Our attention tends to be drawn, though, from here more to the west because there you've got that wonderful collection of high fells, the Langdale Pikes beyond Lingmore, uh, Bow Fell, Cuckoo Crags, and Pike of Blisco looks handsome. And just through the gap, you can just see Scorefell Pike. And below us, there's some sheep, uh, Herdwick sheep in a meadow just below the enclosure wall, and a whitewash farmhouse and barns. And I think that features in our narrative in a minute. But can you lead us on a little bit further, Penny? Yeah, this is a really wonderful spot, actually, to, um, to take the story forward. Um, from where we've just left it with Arthur Ransom because what we have here are two very important locations in uh, subsequent children's literature. So I'll just begin by talking a little bit about how the holiday adventure story develops following Ransom. The first author I want to mention is Geoffrey Trees, um, very, very significant children's writer in the middle of the century, relatively little known and little read now, but he set um, a series of books on an imaginary lake called Banami. Uh, and Banamir was actually based on Wastwater primarily, but a little bit like Ransom, he kind of reworks and, and, and changes the landscape and renames it. One of the interesting things about Trees is that he had grown up reading um, very traditional books for children, for, for boys in particular, and he really wasn't very happy about the kind of books he'd been reading. He felt that they were always featuring the upper classes, that they were always about empire and were quite racist. And he actually wrote a book about children's literature where he critiqued that kind of writing. So he really set out to write adventure book in the lakes that rejected all of that and which engaged with a changing world. So his first book, um, which is called No Boats on Banamere was published in 1949. We've moved on here from the interwar period uh, and now we're just after the Second World War and of course the world had changed quite dramatically and we see that coming through in quite subtle ways really but but we see that coming through in Trees' writing. So for example as in the Swallows and Amazons books we have an absent father but this time rather than the father being away sort of manning a great ship uh, this time the father is absent because the mother and father have got divorced. 
very different kind of you know engagement with with modern context changing worlds changing assumptions and he really plays with those ideas in the book so there's a character in the book called Sir Alfred Askew who owns Bannermere Hall and he's a real symbol of authority and colonial attitudes and he's critiqued throughout the book and there's lots of little subtle reminders that he's trying to do something different with the genre so one of the main child characters uh, walks with a limp and the story engages with that fact and the fact that her handling of, of the landscape is a little bit different because of that so it's a really interesting example and my students actually really loved Jeffrey Trees when they read No Boats on Bannermere they really enjoyed that it's a great read and there's a whole series of five books set in that semi-imaginary location and then just looking down from where we're standing here to the, the whitewashed farmhouse uh, you mentioned, this is a high onside farm. And this features in another series, another really important series of um, children's adventure books, which are contemporaneous with trees. So again, um, 1950s. And these are by Marjorie Lloyd. And there's three books which begin with Felt Farm Holiday. These books are again a reworking of the genre, but uh, Lloyd reworks it in a very different way. So one of the things Lloyd brings to the stories is much more attention to realism. So she really pulls away on the fantasy elements. These children come to the lakes and, and by and large, their adventures are the kind of adventures that children would have in the lakes. They go for a walk they might get lost in the mist, they go fishing, they might get a bit wet and fall in the water. But, you know, nothing really extraordinary happens to them. And instead, what you get in Lloyd is a really detailed attention to geographical place. You could read her books and, and follow where she's describing on the walks. Again, it's another sort of reworking of this landscape taking on different meanings, different approaches for a new generation of readers. And that's, of course, where I come in, in a sense, because that series was where I started reading. Wonderful, and that's inspired you. <laughs> inspired me to become a, a writer t- to this landscape. Yes. So it's wonderful, but I'm not a child writer. <laughs> I'm childlike. You can. <laughs> but anyway, we are part of a, an ongoing chain of uh, influence, and that's marvellous. And to look down there now and see it sitting there quietly, talking to us, really, Yes. Uh, as you are eloquently now, which is marvellous. So what does that lead us to, then, Penny? So that leads us, really, into the, the latter part of the 20th century and beyond. And it's, it's fair to say that this landscape has gone on to inspire a significant body of children's books, not all of them within the, uh, the holiday adventure genre. So some of the other genres we've already looked at, the talking animals genre, um, that gets revisited. In the 1960s, for example, we have Molly Lefebvre, is Scratching Co, which is a story of a, a set of cats who go on an adventure. Um, to illustrated by, illustrated. The, by none other than, not me, no, Alfred Wainwright. <laughs> Alfred Wainwright, absolutely. That's a surprise for everybody. It is a surprise, yes, and I think he struggled with some of the animal drawings a little bit. He, he said that they, they were a bit tricky. And then we get a very different kind of reworking of the talking animals genre um, in uh, The Plague Dogs, which was published in 1977 by Richard Adams. Again, this relates to the landscape we're in at the moment, so just behind us is the location for the imaginary, it has to be said, the imaginary laboratory uh, where uh, the dogs are being really brutally treated. They're being Monk Coniston area. Monk Coniston area, yeah. These animals, these dogs, they escape from this lab and they um, they run out into the landscape. They, of course, want to eat, so they start attacking sheep and next thing they're, they're being pursued. So that's a much darker kind of vision of the Lake District um, and it 
it's it's sort of picking up on that darker legacy perhaps that we've talked about in Beatrix Potter and mm. exploring ideas that were kind of more current and relevant in the 1970s like animal testing mm. um, was a very big issue uh, mm. at the time because Wainwright rejected a, a degree from Lancaster University on that on those grounds I gather yes and, um, and Ruskin of course who is a you know inherits many of Wordsworth's ideas he resigned from Oxford University when they um, voted to allow vivisection in the laboratories so mm. there's a thread running through there still we can all pinpoint something (laughs) we can all pinpoint it back to words in some way um and really just taking it very far uh, forward and right up to the moment um i just wanted to mention a book that was published last year 2019 uh, called spylark Uh, it's a wonderful book uh, by danny ruhlander Again, this relates to the landscape we are in at the moment because just over to the right of us is Windermere mm-hmm. and um, Spylark is set at the, the northern end of, of Windermere. This is a little bit back to the sort of adventure story. It's not exactly a holiday adventure because the child is living um, in the landscape. He's, he's going to school here. But it has qualities. It has elements of the holiday adventure story. But again, one of the unusual things is that the book is in part inspired by Rolander's experiences as an RAF pilot. And what he does is he takes us into the landscape via the child's use of a drone. Oh. So very popular at the moment, of course. Very much so. um, and the, the boy flies the, the drone around, and this is how he he uncovers this sort of criminal activity. I won't I won't spoil the plot, but he uncovers this fairly significant criminal activity. And one of the reasons why the child uses the drone is that he's been injured. He walks with a limp. He also suffers from claustrophobia. So the the book um, deals with quite difficult subject matter with the child trying to negotiate these problems. But interestingly, of course, it is again through his learning within through his experiences of this landscape that he ends up managing to deal with those problems and and to some extent overcome them so it's still a pattern there Mm. even though it's being appropriated in different ways this is the uh, evolution of thinking about how you use a landscape to inspire people and connect them i suppose there are also working as we speak uh, with a new theme that they're working around. Wordsworth in the prelude talks about books as, as being the things which lay their sure foundations in the heart of man. And I think there is a sense here that these books are going to inspire future generations. But if we go back through the story, we'll see that the books that uh, the writers read inspired them in their own work. Yes. Um, so yes. it's, it's a continuing process. Yeah, that's given us a good point to wander down towards High Armside. It's Nostalgic for me, certainly. (laughs) So we've been through a whole catalogue of amazing chronology of books. Many of them have an enduring appeal worldwide. So what is the enduring appeal of children's books based on this landscape? It's a really good question. And I think really, in a sense, it's kind of answered by one of the things we've sort of been touching on through the walk, which is the fact that um, every different generation, every different writer from different eras um, finds something new finds different meanings and different ways of responding to this landscape so for me it is that um that possibility that's opened up by this place for imaginative engagement and that really shows the 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 child reader that they can have their own imaginative adventures and experiences in this place i think also in terms of legacy which is the other part of that you know what, what is passed on from these books although we get many very different versions of the lakes within them there are some 
some kind of threads that have continued throughout. And I think one of the most important one of those, particularly for the child reader, is um, all of these books, whether it's through talking animals, running around in the landscape, uh, or whether it's through um, children fishing and having adventures, all of these books do cultivate a kind of passion for nature and they also cultivate a respect for nature. It's very difficult to imagine anyone who's grown up reading these books actually throwing litter around in the Lake District and, and, and leaving it there, you know, as we've seen so so recently in the media. Um, because these books do, they do engender a kind of respect for the natural world. All of the children, all the child characters in these stories, they clean up after themselves. They don't leave things around them because they understand the importance of nature and I think really that is probably one of the most important legacies of this body of work. Yeah, it's a powerful message. With all this wonderful array of literature that we've danced around and delighted in inevitably as somebody like yourself who has gloried in it and been hugely influenced by it certain books will have impacted extra specially. Can you pinpoint perhaps let's say three that you can't resist and often return to? I think it's probably the hardest question you've asked me today. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, it's very difficult. I, I do have lots and lots of favourites, so I'll, I'll try and narrow it down. You, I hope you have, actually. <laughs> I, I do, and probably my answer would change if you asked me again in five minutes. So I'll, I'll go with the three that, that I'm thinking of at the moment. So um, I think, really, I, I do want to get a Beatrix Potter in there because she was very influential on my own imaginative um, growth as a child. Uh, and the one I'm going to pick as my favourite is uh, Mr Jeremy Fisher. Uh, and that's actually partly because that was the one that my own children, my two sons, loved most. And I used to read it to them. As, so it had a kind of second generation effect as I passed that love on. And I, I think it's a wonderful story. Um, I would really like to put a girls' school story in there because um, that was a genre that really influenced me as a child. So I'll probably, I'll probably plump for Angela Brazel's St Catherine's College. And then my third one, and again, I'm very torn here, but I'm going to go with Arthur Ransom's Winter Holiday, just because when the nights start drawing in, there's nothing I like better, really, than pulling that off the shelf and, and wallowing in um, that beautiful description of the snow um, and the, the adventures in the snow. Well, we're in an authentic setting with sheep making them distinctive bleating and there's a buzzard overhead and we're looking down on High Arnside Farm, the whitewash farmhouse with the slate barn connected to the actual working farm beyond, which is Low Arnside. This is High Arnside, Low Arnside. This is Fell Farm Country, very much the culmination of our narrative today uh, and it's it's been a magic day, Penny. I've really enjoyed it. You are such a, a, an engaging and knowledgeable lady. I, I really have loved it. And I'm sure our listeners will, but they'll be ever more <laughs> delighted when you get your teeth into our quick-fire questions. <laughs> <Good holiday weight. laughs> which, which is um, the easiest part of the whole exercise. Oh. Yes, you'll, you'll love it. So what would be your perfect Lakeland day? 
Oh, well, my, my ideal Lakeland day would probably be uh, at Rydal, just because mm. it's the, the spot of my childhood. And it would probably also be a day very much like this with my two sons, and we would be swimming with the damselflies in Rydal. Oh, how lovely. Do you do you wild swim much? I do. I love swimming in the lakes. Which are your favourite lakes to swim in? Again, Rydal, um, Rydal? Uh, partly because of the childhood connection. And I also went camping there in my 20s. Uh, I, I just loved it. I love that landscape. But also, of course, it's very close to where I work. So not this year, but normally um, I can sort of, after a day of teaching, if it's a lovely day, I can go and have a swim afterwards. Nice. A complete package. Yeah, it's got, I think Crummet Water is a meant to be the clearest lake yes, but that's yeah. a distance from where you are what would be your first Lakeland memory uh, the first memory I vividly have is on one of our scrambles at one of the fells and I don't actually know which fell it was it would have been one of the ones around Grassmere, so it could have been Helm Crag um, but it was a really warm day and there was a very wild wind blowing and as we turned around the summit this warm wind sort of hit me like this sort of wall almost and I was I was laughing and my hair was blowing out and my dad who also has this slightly magical view of the world said we're on top of the world. If you were reincarnated in a different time of history, Cumbrian history, when might that be? Oh, well, it probably would have to be the Romantic period. I mean, for, for a brief period of time, um, early 1800s, this really was a, a powerhouse of English literature and there are so many significant writers clustered around this small area. Yeah, it would have to have been then. It wasn't tourism then, it was good no, writing was and writing. imaginative people. <laughs> have you a, a Cumbrian hero or heroine, dead or alive? Oh, that's really difficult. Um... I'm going to say Dorothy Wordsworth. I'm torn between several different people there, if I'm, if I'm honest. But I'm, I'm going to say Dorothy Wordsworth just because, um, particularly over the last few months, it's been her, her writing, the sort of calling you back to closeness, back to the things that are around you, the slowness, bringing you back down to the things that matter, that, that, has, that has really had a big impact on me. So I'm going, I'm going to say her. Have you a favourite Cumbrian food? Yes, <laughs> uh, it's going to be Grassmere gingerbread because oh. I'm afraid once again it was the taste of my childhood. I think this theme we keep coming back to about childhood influence and my, my children love it and I'm actually not allowed to go anywhere near Grassmere without buying a pack to take home for my dad who adores it and my sons who adore it. So it has to be really. Oh well, the Nelsons will be chuffed a bit <laughs> with you. Um, okay, Red squirrel or herdwick sheep? Red squirrel. A hotel or tent? Hotel. <laughs> I don't do tents. We've covered you there. Now, if you were Prime Minister for just one day, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria? I think, and this is probably to do with very pressing problems at the moment, it would be to address the situation around traffic and cars and visitors. And I'm not sure I have an actual solution to that, but I think that is such a pressing problem for the region. It needs to be tackled very quickly. And finally, when the very sad day comes and it's a very long way off, uh, your ashes are to be scattered or buried somewhere, I don't know. Where might that be? It could be anywhere. Oh, um, probably um, in, in the river that runs through my village, the river wire. The, the, which one? The river wire, which the runs wire. through my village. Oh, yes, comes off Wardstone. Yeah. Off the, oh, yes, the wire. Very, there's a, a sheep has got an opinion as <laughs> he well. Has. He's telling us where he wants his ashes. Yes, clearly, absolutely. Well, Penny, it's been an absolute dream to be with you. I've loved every minute of it. Uh, we must meet again and find another story because uh, your knowledge is remarkable. But I'm sure our listeners will have loved every minute of it, and uh, I hope they'll um, 
uh, be spurred to go and find the second-hand bookshops. Thank you, Mark. Journey's end back at Oxenfell High Cross. Pretty sweaty, Mark, after that uh, up and down. Oh, that was good. That was muggy. Thank goodness there was a bit of a breeze periodically. There was. Uh, and that's a blessing of being on top of a fell every now and then. It does give you some hope to cool down. But boy, that did get hot. It got hot, but we learned a huge amount. That was a, a whistle-stop tour of Lakeland children's literature and... Great to, to think and get context behind some of the authors that I knew and already loved, but also discover a few more. We come to some important communications we've yes. received into yeah. the mailbox. First one, Ivan or Ivan Lewis, and uh, the subject of his email is the can of minor consequence on not rig. Right, so <laughs> bear with me here. He writes, driving home listening to Country Stride Podcast 34... Mark talks of a can of minor consequence on not rig. Can you just remind us of the context of this, Mark? Well, we were with Julia Aglandy, we were passing by, and she was just pointing out these uh, sheep, uh, yes. well, the, the, the three generations of sheep, and um, we almost passed it without a second thought. But I looked at it and I thought, that although it's minor consequence, it actually looked as if it's just been built. Yes. It was all small stones, so it drew my attention to it, so I had to mention it. You're right. And, of course, it turns out one of our listeners was a party to it. Yes, so, yes, the email continues. I smiled all the way home because a few weeks ago my son Theo built that cairn from bits of stones lying about near the summit, he continues. He proudly got to the top of his 80th Wainwright the following day. Thanks for the podcast. Keeps me in touch with Cumbria when I'm not able to be there in person. Well, thanks, Ivan or Ivan. That's uh, nice to know where that cairn of minor consequence came from and then we have a lovely letter here as well uh, this is colin duncan who writes as follows add my thanks to the many others you've received for your nostalgic podcast which i'm enjoying for the second time around i have to say rory from california remind us who rory from california is Mark. well i'm sure rory will be listening to this rory hansen from San Rafael in California, who drives a UPS lorry with his co-partner Melvin, uh, cross-country every week. Could imagine that. Anyway, he came to be the furthest flung uh, listener. But however... But however, yes. So, I have to say, Rory from California is not your furthest flung country stride listener. So I'm responding to your request to get in touch, as I live in New Zealand and I'm a regular listener. In fact, I'm on my second take, as somehow I don't seem to be able to wait for the next episode, and constantly I'm in withdrawal mode. Without Covid, I was intending to be in the lakes again this year. I try every year, but that was thwarted. So I revel in your descriptive travels along byways I relate to, having spent so many years as a visitor to the area. Originally from the UK, I escaped the weather but lost the magic of the lakes and in my twilight years I reminisce and wallow in nostalgia with the aid of your picturesque narrations. Thank you once again, keep it up and look after the place while I'm away. We will indeed. 
Thanks, Colin. Yes, we will do our best we'll on do that our best front. For you, Colin. If you want to write in to us, please do send an email to us via the website at www.countrystride.co.uk, where you will also find a lot of photos of Mark and myself with our guests uh, up on the fells, and also 34 other episodes now. 34 other episodes, along with all those drawings. I've got another one to do for today. I think I'll yes. do the. Uh, High Ironside, the, the, that lovely Fell Farm one, which harks back to my memories as well. So, lovely, authentic farmstead. Lovely Lakeland Farm, wasn't with, it? With, with the Langdale pipes behind, or something of that nature. Wonderful. Lovely, yeah, great memory. Uh, some final housekeeping. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. At Country Stride 1. Very briefly, Mark, on our summer of podcasts. Ooh, what gosh. have we got coming up? Well, coming up, well, we're going to Walney Island. Ah, that's, yes. That'll be an interesting one. See Barrow and be a, a feel for... Barra. Barra. Yeah, the, the, the pronunciation's all together different, I gather, down there. Mm. We're getting Jamie Normington again, which would be wonderful, from the Cumbria Wildlife Trust, and uh, Kate Davis, the poet, who has always lived down there, so that should be rich. They have a very rare toad down there. Oh, right. Is it a natterjack or something? It is, oh, indeed. Right. That, yeah. Well, we got that, and we're going to Matterdale with a very special guest. Uh, and then we're the talking about the Battle of Thermia. Battle of Thermia, yes. Yes, it's about conservation movement. Early, and that'll mm. be with Ian Brody. It will be. And uh, then we got others. Oh, well, we're just an endless it, trail it, of wonderful. It, it, there's options. no point naming anymore. No, no. Harriet Martineau. Oh goodness, yes, yes. nearly forgot. Yeah, Kerry Andrews oh, is going to join us. Right, enough. We can't keep name dropping these things. Thanks for joining us all on Country Stride today, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs>